0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, December 3rd. I'm Marco Werman. Today, we begin a week-long focus on cancer in the developing world, it's a major killer, but not often recognized as such in places like Uganda. Cancer is a disease of the
1: African person, just like any other person elsewhere in the world. And later.
2: When you first come to New York, if you are interested in pizza, you have to make a pilgrimage
0: to Totono's because it's like going to the Vatican. Can't right now, though, the spiritual home of New York pizza, is struggling to reopen after Sandy.
3: The world is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The White House said today that it's concerned about the possibility that Syria could be considering the use of chemical weapons. Spokesman Jay Carney made that statement after reports that intelligence agencies had detected the movement of Syrian chemical weapon components recently. Earlier, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton warned President Bashar al-Assad against using such weapons. She said this is a red line for the United States. To find out more about Syria's chemical weapons capabilities, we turn now to Charles Delfer. He's a former U.S. intelligence officer and weapons inspector. Uh, What kind of chemical weapons does Syria have?
4: Well, for really decades now, it's been assessed that Syria has chemical agent, both sarin, a nerve agent, and a blister agent, mustard they probably also have a more sophisticated agent called VX. There have been very, very extensive reports about them importing precursors and the ability to produce these things for decades. Many believe that Syria's holdings of chemical agent are among the highest in the world.
0: Have they ever used them?
4: We've seen no data the substantiate that they have used them against their own people or anyone else for that matter. They have, however, uh, engaged in tests both uh, with you know, missile delivery systems and other things. We've been able to observe some activities which everyone has associated with testing of chemical agent dispersion.
0: And if they were used in whatever circumstances, what uh, damage could uh, these weapons inflict?
4: Well, you know, militarily, they're, they're not all that useful if there are not massed numbers of troops. I mean, it's a, as you can imagine, it's like a, a, a cloud of smoke and it will kill those that it touches. I think in the circumstances that are ongoing in in Syria now it be more of a terror weapon in a sense something which would dissuade the local population from supporting the, um, the you know insurgents the thing to focus on is you know individuals are the ones who are going to have to operate these and we've been trying I believe the international community has been trying to deter their use by not just focusing on the government, but by letting people know that they, as individuals, will be held accountable if these weapons are used and they will face you know charges and prosecution in the future. The reports that we're seeing today are troubling because uh, I think people have a pretty good idea inside the government where the locations are of the agent that is the you know the the material themselves, but when they start connecting them with delivery systems, that's become I think a red line. That has provoked a lot of the attention and and the news reports that you've seen today.
0: And is it uh, the existence of those delivery systems uh, that's making this an issue right now?
4: If the Syrians are, in fact, loading and dispersing these weapons, that means they are doing something directly contrary to the messages that they've been receiving from every country on the planet. And they know that if they did that, it would be observed by the intelligence services around the planet. These are not things that they can hide. So they're doing that with knowledge of forethought that they're sending a message, and that's troubling.
0: And what about any preparations uh, being made right now to secure these weapons in case the Assad regime falls? Because that's the big worry. I mean, if the Assad regime falls, then where do the weapons go next?
4: That is a difficult problem. I know that the United States is you know, making contingency plans, for, You know, as many other countries are, I'm sure, as well, to how to contain these... If there were a a change of regime, then certainly one of the highest priorities of the international community would be to locate and account for all the weapons which the Syrians have, and there are a lot.
0: Charles Delfer, former head of the Iraq Survey Group and former special advisor to the director of the CIA, thank you very much. Thank you. Israeli officials have repeatedly expressed concerns about Syria's chemical weapons, but the main news story today from Israel is about something else settlements. The Israeli government has ignited a storm of international criticism by announcing that it will begin building Jewish settlements in the so-called E-1 area of the West Bank. That's just outside Jerusalem in territory the Palestinians say is key to the creation of a viable Palestinian state. So far, the Israeli government is not backing down despite facing what could be unprecedented diplomatic isolation. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. A story with an
5: ominous implication came to life this morning in the Israeli news media, and it went like this. Britain, France, and Holland were so displeased with Israel's announcement on settlement expansion, they were considering recalling their ambassadors from Tel Aviv in protest. Subsequent reports said such a drastic response was off the table, but the episode still highlights the diplomatic bind Israel finds itself in right now. At Yitzhak Alone's Jerusalem barbershop, they heard about the controversy on the radio, but as he works on a customer's hair, Alone tells me that he's got full faith in Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu.
1: Baby.
5: <laughs> Using Netanyahu's nickname, Bibi, Alone says there's no substitute for this Prime Minister. <laughs> What he's doing is just fine, Alone says, Netanyahu is responding to the Palestinians. They went against the Oslo agreements by going to the United Nations. The barber adds that he has no problem with new Israeli settlement building in the West Bank, even if the Europeans complain about it. But here's a question: Do you worry if, if the Americans get angry about the settlements more than if the Europeans get angry: lot of. That's not good, Alon says. Of course it's not good. The U.S. is Israel's most important ally. The Americans were against the Palestinian president's trip to the United Nations, too. So if they're angry about settlement building, it's a problem, he says. The timing of this decision on settlement building is troubling, says Anat Kurtz of the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. It comes after Israel received widespread support from the U.S. and Europe during its recent military offensive in the Gaza Strip. And Kurtz says it sends a message.
6: Israel is isolated in the Middle East. The United States is also getting isolated regarding its Middle East policies.
5: Kurtz says putting Jewish settlements in E1, an area east of Jerusalem, will be seen as an Israeli attempt to put obstacles in the path toward peace with the Palestinians. The United Nations has condemned the settlement plan as an almost fatal blow to peace. Russia, Germany, and the U.S. State Department have expressed their opposition. And today, the U.K., France, and Sweden summoned Israel's ambassadors to protest the announcement. Jonathan Reinhold of Bar-Ilan University says Prime Minister Netanyahu ought to take this seriously. The Americans, the Europeans, and the Palestinians, he says, have all drawn a red line at putting settlements into this part of the West Bank.
6: What Israel would gain by doing this is largely unclear to me. And what it would lose in terms of its diplomatic standing, its relations in a deeper sense in Europe, its relations with the U.S. is very, very clear
5: but Netanyahu is standing firm. He's called the Palestinians' move at the U.N. a gross violation of previous agreements and that he intends to carry on building in Jerusalem and in all the places that are on the map of Israel's strategic
0: interests. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. It's been just over a month since Superstorm Sandy devastated parts of the New York, New Jersey area. Millions of people are still struggling to cope with the aftermath. Last Friday, I was in New York to see how things were going and to hear about the legacy of one Brooklynite who came from Italy over a century ago.
6: His name is Anthony Totono, was his nickname, Piero, and he was the one making the pizzas.
0: Mr. Piero was New York City's first pizza maker. Many of you have eaten, just this weekend perhaps, a slice of Totono's legacy. But a real pizza like Totono's isn't ordered by the slice. It comes by the pie, just like the pizzas in the city Totono left in 1902 to come to America, Naples, Italy. Came to Coney Island
6: and he opens up Totono's in 1924 and we're still here. The longest continuously run family-owned in the world, unless there's one in Pakistan that I don't know about. <laughs>
7: or That's and
0: Antoinette Shkababi. Balzano. She's one of Totono's grandchildren who now run the restaurant. One month after Sandy be. clobbered the northeast U.S., and Coney Island in particular, Totono's, like the rest of that neighborhood, is still picking up the pieces. On my visit, I couldn't even go into Totono's to see the damage. Fumigators had come the day before to gas out mold and mildew. And besides, Antoinette was rushing to file some papers with FEMA at makeshift offices along the Coney Island boardwalk.
6: I'm going to meet now Chantel. She couldn't wait to meet me. And uh, Andrew from the governor's office.
0: It was Antoinette Balzano's first time to the boardwalk since Sandy, and she was surprised that Tom's, a well-known breakfast place at Coney Island, was already back in business. Up and down the boardwalk along the amusement park, sand has gotten pushed all over the place. But there wasn't much evident water damage at Tom's, not the kind that has shut down Totonos.
6: My friend who lives on 16th Street, he said when he came out, he packed a bag, he was just leaving, and he saw waves coming down the block, which means that it's coming from the ocean, and waves coming at him, which is from the creek, and he ran back in because he didn't think he'd make it out of that. So.
0: Antoinette has been so busy figuring out how to get Tatonos up and running again, she's barely thought about which way the water came a month ago. Others in New York who value what Totono symbolizes have other concerns, like what's at stake with Totono's survival. When you
2: first come to New York, if you're interested in pizza, you have to make a pilgrimage to Totono's because it's like going to the Vatican.
0: That's Ed Levine. He started the foodie website SeriousEats.com. It has a section called Slice all about pizza, and Ed's also written a book about pizza called Slice of Heaven. So we have a lot of intel (laughs) in the pizza world. About Totono's and where it sits in the evolution of pizza, a number of food critics have said that it is, in this country, the link to the old world, the closest you'll ever get in America to Neapolitan pizza. Ed Levine goes even a step further. I
2: spent a week in Naples when I was researching my pizza book with a Neapolitan friend. So I really got to see Naples, and I think we ate at 25 pizzerias in five days or whatever. But this is not Neapolitan pizza, and I would argue that it's actually better. But I know that's a controversial opinion. But and what, why is it better? There's nothing crispy or crunchy about Neapolitan pizza. There's a really high lip called the Cornicion. It's fairly wet and used to be they use decent quality olive oil. Now it can be a puddle of sunflower seed oil or some combination oil. And what's great about Neapolitan American pizza is that combination of crisp and tender. And you don't get
0: that with Neapolitan pizza. But that's precisely what you get at Totono's. It's that taste of the old world improved by the experience of the new world. Antoinette Balzano, her sister, Louise Cookie Cimentieri, their whole family, they all know that that's what makes their place special. And they've overcome a crisis before. Totono's suffered a fire in 2009. And the family figures if there is a reason to restart again in a known flood zone to boot... It is to preserve one aspect of their Italian heritage, a pizza with a simple crust, fresh mozzarella, and a very hot oven.
6: I think we have to preserve what Grandpa came here to do, and we have to let that live on in the same fashion that he intended it to.
0: What do you think he would have made of the flood that came into Coney Island? (laughs)
6: <laughs> that's hysterical because earlier cookie said i don't know what he would have said he didn't speak english <laughs> and since i'm not doing so well in italian <laughs> i'm not sure what he would have said he probably would have said so we'll open tomorrow
0: <laughs> we've got a slideshow of the whole Totonos <laughs> pizza scene right now on coney island until Totino's reopens these pictures at the are about as good as it's going to get Still to come on the program, a judge in China makes a politically momentous decision. Or did he? We'll find out later on PRI Public Radio International.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The State Department today called for an end to the unjustified imprisonment of Alan Gross in Cuba. It was three years ago today that Gross was arrested by Cuban authorities. He was detained for illegally distributing restricted communications equipment to members of Cuba's small Jewish community and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Gross is working as a subcontractor for the U.S. government's Agency for International Development. Alan Gross doesn't get many visitors, but in just the last week, he met with Peter Kornblu. Cornblue is a senior analyst at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. Peter, first of all, how did you
8: get involved in this case? Alan Gross's case is uh, emblematic of the deterioration, hostility uh, in U.S.-Cuban relations. Uh, And it is important now to resolve his case and the case of uh, five Cuban counterterrorism agents who are in prison in the United States in order for the opportunity to be seized to improve relations in the second Obama administration. So when I was in Cuba this last week, I asked for permission to see Alan Gross. And to the credit of the Cuban government, they readily gave it to me. And we had a, a very significant, uh, long conversation about many things uh, for almost four hours.
0: So so just, it, 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 does he express any remorse for what, what he did? I mean, it,
8: does he seem shocked that he's in jail? I think he uh, is uh, extremely upset uh, that he is in jail. The When he was arrested... Um, One of the things that the Cubans acquired from his baggage uh, was a pen drive that had his previous trip reports on it. He was arrested on his fifth trip to Cuba in 2009. And those documents have become part of um, now a court filing that the family has filed suing the U.S. government uh, and the subcontractor DAI. They make it clear that as his trips progressed, he realized that it was, as he put it, extremely risky business, mm. what he was doing. So um, he, he knew that uh, that there was a threat of him being uh, arrested. Let me just say, today is the third anniversary of his arrest. I asked him what uh, his message uh, to the world would be from the, the Cuban uh, military hospital where he's being held. Right. What did he say? Uh, and, He said something that surprised me. He said, my message is that the United States and Cuba should sit down at the negotiating table and talk, and as he put it, tachlas, which is a Yiddish word for truthfully. Mm. Um, I even had to ask him to spell the word um, for me. Um, uh, He said there should be no preconditions uh, in these talks, and more surprisingly for me, he said that the, the, the first meeting should result in a non-belligerency pact being signed between Cuba and the United States. In other words, that Cuba and the United States bury this historical hatchet, this perpetual hostility in U.S. aggression towards Cuba and, and Cuba's uh, anger with the United States and its policy of intervention. Um, and that his point was, is that if the United States and Cuba can start to have better relations, can improve the kind of ambience in which they talk to each other, in that context, a resolution of his case can be discussed.
0: I mean, that's a really nice thing for him to be saying, to have these kind of sit-down discussions and to come to some resolution. But this kind of plea appears against the backdrop of charges against him that the way you describe it don't seem all that off the mark. You
8: know, I... I had the opportunity to talk to Cuban officials after uh, I spoke to Alan Gross. And by the um, way, were
0: were any officials in
8: the cell with you or in this room where you met with him? Or was let it let just the just two paint of you? Let me just paint the picture of okay. our of our of our talks. He is being held not in a, a traditional prison, he's being held in a military hospital compound. He has a, a room that he shares with two other Cuban prisoners who, from what I gather, have rotated over the last three years. Um, I passed through uh, some security, put my bag and my telephone on a table, and was led into a a clean little room. This is not his cell, but kind of a a sitting room with uh, three couches. And he was sitting there waiting for me, and we spoke uninterrupted, uh, certainly without anybody else in the room, for almost four hours. I'm sure our conversation was listened to, but nevertheless, it was unimpeded. Um, And we talked, frankly, from everything to the neighborhoods in which he has lived in in Washington, to the Jewish delis that we've both been to, to the issues about his case and U.S.-Cuban relations. At one point, I said to him, you know, resolving your case really is, is what it's going to take uh, to to overcome the obstacles towards better U.S.-Cuban relations. And he said to me, Peter, you know, my case is ancillary to uh, the broader picture of U.S.-Cuban relations. My case is not an obstacle to better U.S.-Cuban relations. Better U.S.-Cuban relations is an obstacle to, to the resolution of my case. Mm. Now, let me just say one of the key issues that is the obstacle – to the resolution of his case, is that the Cubans uh, have uh, five prisoners of their own in the United States that they want back. These are Cuban counterterrorism agents who were sent as part of a network of spies, uh, mostly focusing on exile groups. Um, Those agents were arrested, but Cuba wants to trade Alan Gross uh, for their agents.
0: So is that the kind of roadmap right now? I mean, to the extent that Alan Gross was working for the U.S. government on his trip to Cuba, what then is the U.S. government doing to help him?
8: I think the frustration for the Gross family is that the Obama administration has really done very little. There have been some talks behind the scenes over the last three years But uh, the administration has essentially snubbed its nose at the repeated calls by the Cubans for talks. Um, After I saw Alan Gross, I I met with Cuban officials and the message that was conveyed to me was we are willing to sit down and talk to the United States about mutual interests, including the Alan Gross case, whenever uh, and wherever and essentially whatever – Uh, the agenda of the United States is. And as Alan Gross said to me, you know, I understand that U.S. officials have said that the Cubans aren't serious about talks. And that attitude, he said, on the part of the Obama administration is unacceptable to me.
0: Peter Kornbluh, senior analyst at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. He met last week with Alan Gross, an American serving 15 years in Cuba. Peter, thanks very much.
8: Thank you, Marco.
0: We stay in the Western Hemisphere for a gem of a geo-quiz today. We're looking for the name of a state in Brazil that's famous for its mines, In fact, the state's name is a reference to mining. One of its biggest exports is iron ore, but some of the smaller mines in the state produce valuable gemstones, like aquamarine, a kind of crystal that can be cut into sparkling blue gems. Legend has it that wearing aquamarine promises a happy marriage, not to mention joy and wealth. Speaking of wealth, the world's biggest aquamarine gem, nicknamed Dom Pedro, is about to go on display in Washington, D.C. We'll hear all about it when we name the Brazilian state where it was originally found later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Worman. Ahead, Chinese take their complaints to the highest level.
9: They come to Beijing in the ancient tradition of petitioning the emperor and hoping that the central leadership will do something to help them.
0: And later, fancy
9: an investment in Mogadishu?
10: If you take the risk, then you have the opportunity to, to make a super profit.
3: E.R.I.s. The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The health of the world's poorest people has received a lot of attention in recent years. The U.S. government and private charities have spent billions of dollars to fight AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis in sub-Saharan Africa and other impoverished parts of the planet. And yet worldwide, cancer kills more people in low- and middle-income countries than those three diseases combined. In a special series all this week, we'll examine cancer's toll in the developing world and what's being done to reduce it. Our reporter for this series is veteran health journalist Joanne Silburner. Today, she profiles one man who has waged a lonely battle against a major killer.
7: Jackson Oram is a busy man. We are here. He directs the Uganda Cancer Institute, the only dedicated cancer treatment facility in a country of 33 million people but he still finds time to see patients like Musa Satimba.
1: Morning, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good to see you. Satimba,
7: Satimba. is in this small room with little more than a chair and exam table.
1: You're eating okay? Yes, I'm eating okay. He's
7: here for a checkup. He has a type of gastrointestinal cancer that is often fatal even in the West.
1: You're getting one of the best treatments for this disease. <laughs> yeah.
7: Orem has arranged for Satimba to get a very effective and costly new cancer drug for free courtesy of the manufacturer. There's paperwork involved, and drugs for only a few cancers are available this way. It's a godsend for Satimba, who's been doing very well. Unfortunately, he's the rare exception, says Oram. The survival rate for cancer patients who make it to the Institute is astonishingly low.
1: In a year, we get about 22,000 new cases, and of those 22,000, Uh, 20,000 actually do die within a year.
7: Most Ugandans don't have a real concept of cancer as a set of diseases that can be diagnosed and treated. In some tribal languages, there is no word for cancer.
1: People are dying because they don't have a system. They don't have early diagnosis. They don't actually even know that they have cancer.
7: The people who do realize they have cancer often hide it. There's stigma and there's this.
1: Once you are diagnosed with cancer, they think that is already a death sentence.
7: And they're partly right. Most people don't come in until the very last stages of cancer. At that point, no doctor anywhere could do much for them. Orem studied oncology in the U.S. He came back to Uganda to head this government-owned cancer institute in 2004. For several years, he was the only oncologist in the entire country.
1: It was really very, very demanding, but even up to now, I can't explain how I was managing because actually I was doing everything. <laughs>
7: Orem doesn't complain, ever. But some things make him cringe. One of them is a comment he's heard expressed by people from developed countries, that cancer doesn't hit poor people.
1: People think that, oh, malaria kills, uh, other diseases are killing people from a low socioeconomic status. But Cancer is the same. The truth of the matter is that cancer is a disease of the African person, just like any other person elsewhere in the world.
7: The perception that cancer is not a problem of Africans leads to a lack of money, he says.
1: When you ask for funding for cancer, nobody is going to give you. But if you ask for funding for these other diseases, they say, all right, your priority is correct. We are going to give you some funds. I think that is actually the reason why things are the way they are.
7: There's also a perception that cancer is too expensive to treat, and treatment is too high-tech to be done in poor countries. Orem says that's not necessarily true. He takes me for a walk up a hill so we can see the Uganda Cancer Institute.
1: We just have to go up, and then we look down.
7: Up the hill, the Ugandan government is putting up what will be a modern 200-bed cancer hospital. It will replace the 120 bare-bones beds of the Uganda Cancer Institute down
1: below. You see... That expanse of a building with a blue roof, that is the outpatient department.
7: In that building is a clinic like some you might see in the U.S., where patients receive chemotherapy through intravenous lines. There's also a building with the beginnings of a modern pharmacy. None of the buildings include a gamma beam generator or a robot that can do surgery. But some conditions can be treated as successfully here as in the U.S., And now Orem has the help of five Ugandan cancer specialists who recently got training in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. What keeps Orem going is that people in the West are beginning to take interest.
1: I'm really happy to say people are much more receptive to our messages than before. It looks like we are beginning to make an inroad.
7: Last year, the United Nations urged that more be done to detect and treat cancer in the developing world. George and Laura Bush recently toured Africa to bring attention to breast and cervical cancer. Stillorum says when it comes to fighting cancer, Uganda is just at the starting point. For the world, I'm Joanne Silberner, Kampala, Uganda.
0: Joanne's story was produced with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Tomorrow, our series on cancer in the developing world continues. We go to Haiti, where an American charity is fighting breast cancer.
9: The reason we're taking it on is, is similar to the reasons we've taken on other illnesses is because people are suffering in the countries where we work, and there's something we can do about it.
0: And we've got a lot more online, including an interactive map of cancer around the world. What explains the high rate of stomach cancer in Asia? Why is West Africa a hot spot for liver cancer? Explore our map and our special videos at theworld.org slash cancer. And be sure to join the conversation on Twitter... Just include the hashtag global cancer. Normally, municipal court decisions in China don't receive a lot of attention or raise many eyebrows. But yesterday, the unexpected happened. A Beijing municipal court sentenced 10 people to jail for illegally holding and assaulting a group of residents from Hinan Province in the eastern central part of China. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in the capital city. So 10 people arrested for abusing a group of citizens. Who are these people who were arrested and who are the people they had detained and allegedly abused?
9: Well, details are actually very sketchy. And in fact, the court is now backpedaling on whether anyone has actually been sentenced. What happened was that on Sunday, the Beijing Youth Daily newspaper reported that the Chaoyang District Court had sentenced one defendant to a year and a half in prison and had given months long sentences to nine other men. Today, the court said, no, actually, the report wasn't true. And the People's Daily, which is the government and the Communist Party mouthpiece, reported that there was no verdict has come down yet. The court is hearing such a case. When the court was contacted by journalists saying, well, what's going on, Um, they said, we're investigating to see to what extent the story was untrue. So it's a bit of a muddle at the moment.
0: Well, perhaps some of the confusion came when news of this verdict came down and then somebody went on to Weibo, which is the Chinese social media equivalent of microblog Twitter, and wrote, this is the start of the rule of law. And then suddenly the news disappeared. W- was social media involved in some way in, in the story kind of happening and then disappearing so quickly?
9: Well, certainly the social media response was very positive. You know, people looked at the fact that these poor people from the countryside who have grievances that local officials won't listen to and sometimes are responsible for, you know, they come to Beijing in the ancient tradition of petitioning the emperor. Um, They're petitioning the Communist Party. They're petitioning the government and hoping that the central leadership will do something to help them. And what ends up happening is that these local officials, they're worried about getting promoted. They don't want people coming up and complaining about what they're doing or suggesting they're doing anything illegal. So they send thugs to round these people up and put them in black jails. This can be in the basement of a building. People have been beaten up, occasionally have died in custody. There have been rapes. And then they're sent back home. And what's amazing, and I've talked to several of these petitioners over time, what's amazing is just how tenacious they are. They go home, they get back on the train, they come back to Beijing, they get beaten up again, they get sent back home, they come back. Some of them keep at this for seven, eight, 10 years. And up until now, there really hasn't been much said by Beijing, by the central government on their behalf. So when a verdict comes out, even though it's in a district court of a Beijing municipal court, if a verdict comes out that sounds like it's actually coming down on their side, on the side of the underdog, Mm. that's something that people take notice of online.
0: Let's say the story is true. As far as that comment on Weibo that this is the start of the rule of law, would you agree with that rosy assessment?
9: Well, I would say that it's a step in the direction of giving more rights to individuals who, up until this point, haven't had many when they've come to the Capitol to try to get their grievances heard. They should be heard, according to the Chinese constitution. If this case goes forward the way it was initially reported and uh, people who had beaten up on petitioners who did nothing illegal are sentenced to jail for what they did, it sends a signal. It sends a signal that that old system is on its way out and that if people have a problem, they have a right to have their grievances heard and dealt with.
0: Now, as far as the beginning of the rule of law, there there was news today that put a little more pressure on political reform in China, wasn't there?
9: Right. So the blind Chinese activist Chen Guangchang, who's now in New York, mm. made a statement calling on the new Communist Party chief and president-in-waiting Xi Jinping to do what Burma has done and allow political reform. And if he doesn't, Chen Guangchang said, there's a risk of violent political transition. At one point, he said, Thein Sain, who is the Burmese leader, his open mind won him support from Burma's people and recognition from the world. If he can do it and Xi Jinping doesn't, there could be a very high price to pay down the road.
0: The world's Mary Kay Magzat speaking with us from Beijing. Thanks as always, Mary Kay. Thanks, Marco. As Mary Kay mentioned, Burma does seem to be moving toward political reform. One sign of that, more protests. Reporter Bruce Wallace is in Burma, or Myanmar, and he has a blog post today about the increasing number of demonstrations and how blasé the Burmese media already are about them. That's at theworld.org. Time now to introduce you to Dom Pedro. That's the aquamarine gem we asked about in today's GeoQuiz. Washington Post reporter Brian Vostog has seen it up close at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. So, Brian, were you dazzled?
11: Absolutely. It felt like this gem was alive. This is a special gem. It uh, When the curator took it out of the box, it was like a flash of light. It was glittering, it was twinkling, and when he put it away, it felt like the lights went out in the room. Uh, wow. It was just spectacular.
0: How big is it, and what does it look like?
11: It's over a foot tall. It's 14 inches tall, and it's an obelisk. And and oddly, it's kind of the shape of the Washington Monument, which I guess is fitting. Uh, It's got a pyramid uh, tip, and on the back of it, there are all of these kind of starburst cuts, and the gem cutter cut it that way to reflect all of the light going into the gem back at the viewer. He calls it total reflection. That's what he goes for in his gem sculptures. And I have to say, I think he achieved total reflection.
0: Well, so the gem is known as aquamarine. I don't know it very well, but apparently you can tell by the name it's going to be blue. But how blue is aquamarine?
11: It varies from kind of greenish blue to really, you know, kind of deep uh like I say Caribbean sea blue. And and this gem is on the bluer end of the scale, which is one of the reasons why it's uh so precious and so unique. It's just this deep deep uh kind of sea blue. And aquamarine, is a, it's a close cousin to emerald, actually. They're very similar in their molecular structure. Uh, emerald has a little bit of chromium in it that makes it green, and aquamarine has a little bit of iron in it, and that's what makes it blue. Uh, so it's its pretty unique. When it came out of the ground, uh, the crystal that this gem came from was about three feet long. It weighed 60 pounds. And uh, the the miners who pulled it out of the mine, they actually dropped it when it came out of the mine, uh, and it broke into three pieces, but the biggest piece was still big enough to cut this giant gem, and it's w- one of the biggest gems ever cut.
0: What a nightmare for those miners who dropped this incredible—what th- happened to the other two pieces?
11: Well, the other two pieces were cut up into typical jewelry, small pieces of jewelry, and and sold off for cash. But, you know, a German uh, gem dealer who got wind of this crystal—he in a, he, he lives in a village called Eder oberstein which, which is a famous uh, gem center in Europe— he has a philosophy uh, that that says whatever nature makes big man should not make small and he heard about this crystal and he wanted to preserve the size because it was such a unique piece and uh, it's kind of an adventure story how it all how the deal went down uh, in the in the kind of back country of of minas Gerais, brazil but eventually it ended up in germany where this master gem cutter spent about a year studying and then cutting uh, this crystal and with every Cut of the saw, about $250,000 worth of aquamarine was turned into dust.
0: Oh, right before your eyes. So, uh, listeners, if you're paying attention <laughs> to Brian just now, he mentioned the name of the geo answer today Minas Gerais. Uh, some people say Minas Gerais, it depends on where you come from, I suppose. That's a uh, state in Brazil. So, you write that now it's uh, the largest cut piece of aquamarine ever known. What's going to happen to it, and will it uh, be admired in the same way that you know other great gems like the Hope Diamond have been revered over the years?
11: Absolutely. It was given to the Smithsonian Institution uh, as a permanent gift by a couple in Palm Beach, Florida, who ended up buying uh, Dom Pedro about 12 years ago. And they decided it needed to be seen by the public, that it was such a wonder of the world, of the natural world, that it belonged to everybody. And so the Smithsonian last year, and on Thursday, it will be put on permanent display in the National uh, Gem and Mineral Gallery. And it's going to be about 30 feet from the Hope Diamond. And I think it's going to be a strong competitor for the most visited gem, or most visited object even, in that museum. The Hope Diamond gets 5 million visitors a year. And uh, the Dom Pedro is going to be right at the entrance to that gallery, and it's going to be shining like a beacon.
0: Brian Vostog with The Washington Post. Thanks very much. You're welcome. You can see a picture of the dazzling Dom Pedro aquamarine gem at theworld.org. Our texting game winners today are Real Gems too. Dino in Miami, Oscar in North Hollywood, California, and Patsy in Weatherford, Texas, all came up with Minas Gerais. That's the correct pronunciation, by the way. To play along next time, just text GEOQUIZ one word to 69866. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Two years ago, the front line in Somalia's chaotic civil war ran right through the capital Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab, an Islamist group affiliated with al-Qaeda, controlled half the city. Today, Somalia has a new president, and Al-Shabaab no longer has a stronghold in Mogadishu, but the situation is still far from stable. Mohammed Noor is the mayor of Mogadishu, and he's been working furiously to rebuild the city over the past two years. Right now, he's trying to raise money from the Somali community in London, where he joins us from. Uh, Mr. Mayor, so many things I want to ask you about, but let's start with your nickname, Tarzan. Why are you known as Tarzan? <laughs> <laughs>
10: uh, uh, you know, my father died when I was five, and I grew up in an orf- orphanage. No, I did not
0: uh, know
10: that. Uh, I, I grew up in orphanage, uh, and there was a dormitory with bunk beds. I was sleeping in the top one, and every morning the, they queue us. They put in a queue, and so I sneak out from the queue, and I want to sleep more. So the instructor came in and. There was a window, so I jumped from the window to a tree and grabbed a branch. So he, he was so scared, he thought that I'd fall down. And <laughs> when he came to the window, he saw me uh, holding the branch. And at that time, there was films, uh, movies that they called Tarzan. So the, he called me Tarzan. And from that on, they keep Tarzan. They call me Tarzan. And I forget my real name, so they know me Tarzan in that way.
0: Mr. Mayor, it'll be some time before Mogadishu starts inviting tourists to visit, I I reckon. But even now, make the pitch to me, an American, uh, why why I should visit Mogadishu, now or or eventually.
10: Uh, well, the reason that you are coming to Mogadishu is that there is a business opportunity, I think, because uh, every opportunity exists. I- I'm telling them that if they invest in Mogadishu $100,000, uh, in a year time they have 200000 That's guaranteed because mm. every opportunity of business development exists in Mogadishu. The profit that people can make it right now, they cannot make any other city. So if you take the risk, then you have the opportunity to, to make a supernatural profit.
0: And uh, you've taken the risk because you've run for mayor and you've won. Uh, Do you think people will take the risk and invest in Mogadishu?
10: Well, I, I think right now what we are ex- asking the Somali community to come back and invest their country. Then after that, we, we will encourage, they will see, the non-Somalis will see it, how much money is going on in that country. And I think they can make partnership with Somali companies and they can benefit a lot, I believe that. And we will try to create the environment, uh, a friendly environment for free market and tourism. This is a very beautiful city. It's untapped up to now. So if they can create... Uh, we have the longest beaches in Africa. All that beaches, if they can create hotels and and restaurants, and all that will work, I think. and be, It can be... A, a, the best destination is to come.
0: And, and yet you can only go outside a few minutes each day to to be with the people because of the security risks.
10: No, I go anywhere I want in the city. Really? If they tell you that I go anywhere in the city... I, But I have a bodyguard, very strong bodyguards. Yes, there is a risk, but that risk cannot deter our determination.
0: Well, Mohamed Noor, uh, good luck to you and all the challenges you face. It sounds like you've got a great start already. Thank you very much. Mohamed Noor, better known as Tarzan. He's the mayor of Mogadishu, Somalia. He spoke with us from London. Now, jazz orchestras are rare beasts nowadays. Who knows, there may be one in Mogadishu. But here, the days of famous big bands crisscrossing the country are long gone. They just cost too much. But new jazz artists, such as Japanese composer Asuka Kakatani, remain committed to them. Thank goodness for that, says the world's Alex Galifant. Look, it's not easy getting 18 top-of-the-line musicians to play
12: for little or no money. I know it's impractical, and so does Asuka Kakitani.
13: It's so many people, it's hard to find a place to play, and financially it's hard. But it's so amazing, it's just like I want to do this.
12: There is nothing like a jazz orchestra as it builds up steam and then achieves full flight. For me at least, it's the most enveloping sound going. This is the title track of Kakitani's new CD with her own jazz orchestra, Bloom. grew up in Osaka, Japan. She moved to the U.S. just before her 26th birthday. She headed to Boston to study jazz at Berklee College of Music. Until that moment, she'd fed on a musical diet of bebop and Japanese pop, with a smattering of Michael Jackson along the way. And she'd long been playing classical piano, Bach, Beethoven, and Debussy. But here, her musical landscape opened up even more.
13: I can't remember first time. I heard Kenny Wheeler, but it's just those um large ensemble and a small ensemble. Listen to a million times. It's so beautiful.
12: Kenny Wheeler is a Canadian-born trumpet player. This is the opening to that album for jazz orchestra, music for large and small ensembles. Kakitani dived in, even following Wheeler's own system of composing without any key signatures.
13: I wasn't sure if I can write without key signatures, but oh yeah, Kenny's doing it.
12: (laughs) Kakitani's album, Bloom, is full of the complicated harmony that approach might suggest, but it also makes room for simplicity. Like on the track Dragonflies Glasses, which takes a Japanese children's melody as its starting point.
13: It's some um, really simple melody. That's it and you can do whatever you want.
12: In the children's song, a dragonfly is flying around. His glasses are blue because he's looking at the sky. Then they're red because he's gazing at the sunset. And then they're every different color, like a rainbow. It may be hard to put a jazz orchestra together these days, but Asuka Kaketani and her fellow musicians do it because nothing else sounds quite the same. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York.
0: The Asuka Kakatani Jazz Orchestra plays tonight in Brooklyn. Their CD, Bloom, will be released early in the new year. And we have details on both at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World
3: Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund.
4: PRI Public Radio International.